0: You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. I'm Karen Hall and you're listening to episode 49 of Sprogcast, spotted by Pinter and Martin. In this episode, we're talking about the cultural context of breastfeeding with Cecilia Tamori and we have all our usual news and views. Better still, we have Mark Harris. Hi, Mark.
1: Uh, hi, Karen. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing all right, considering it's the Easter holidays, and I have to do lots of work.
1: Oh, is your children off? Yeah, my, child my, off. my children is off yes, he is yeah <laughs> It's funny how it staggers because we're not off yet till next week, so
0: uh, yeah, that wraps around the Easter then doesn't it? yeah, so um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So
1: what what are you busy doing? You're busy doing your NCT work?
0: I've got, I had my peer supporters this morning. Um, I've got various bits of admin around that. And then I've got to phone somebody later and I've got my students over in Belfast. They're doing a lot of assessments at the moment. So it's their, as we record, they are doing their reflective practice and listening skills assessment. So I've got all my fingers crossed. And how are you?
1: Me? I am feeling physically okay, good. which um, is good. Um, positive about the work I'm doing. Um, yeah, pretty pretty good. That is nice. Yeah, no, that's right. I kind of took some of my pensions at 55. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So I, I kind of do feel semi-retired, but if you kind of ask me what I'm doing, it sounds like I'm some kind of... Dynamo. But well, it doesn't yeah, fill, fill. It,
0: everything you're doing, it, it just expands to fill the time, doesn't it? So our first order of the day is to mention our sponsor Pinter and Martin, um, which is an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition, yoga and fiction at pinterandmartin.com and they do give a 10% discount if you use the code SPROGCAST at the checkout and we also collect sponsorship at patreon.com slash SPROGCAST where you can sign up for badges, t-shirts and other exciting rewards. You can support the show from as little as $1 per month. So if you can stretch to $2, we'll send you a badge. And this month, a badge should have arrived on the doorstep of in Fortune Wood. And I believe you are you are sending or have sent a T-shirt to Alex Burns. Do
1: you know, I haven't done it yet. Oh, oh come on. I know, I know. Alex, if you're listening, I do apologise.
0: Okay, well, it's on the list, so I'll keep nagging him. Don't worry, Alex. Yeah, it will be done. I would also like to do a little shout out to a chap called Josh, who I met in an antenatal breastfeeding session last night. And when I mentioned um, that I make a a podcast, he said he would listen to this episode because this is something we were interested in in the group last night. And I'm I'm saying hi, Josh, early in the episode in case he gets bored and stops listening.
1: (laughs) You can always fast forward and do all that kind of stuff. What were, you, what were you talking about then that, that that brought up this?
0: Yeah, it was an antenatal session on breastfeeding. So obviously I'm there to give them good information about how it all works, and what to expect and so on. But every now and then somebody will ask a question like, um, because I, I, I'll often lead with some statistics and things just to put it all into context. And they'll say, well, why are the rates so low in the UK? And I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> that's a big subject. <laughs> I could talk to you about that all night because that's my tutor subjects but there'll be an essay at the end if i do that
1: yeah and there's there's just not a simple answer and we no. you know we we skirt this subject a lot and uh, i remember talking to my oldest son who's now a father as it happens and uh, he couldn't get his head around the fact that some people um have a real adverse reaction to women breastfeeding in public he, he was going why why? I mean, it might be that all of his brothers and sisters were breastfed, you know, some of them up to two years, and that he's been around breastfeeding uh, all well, his life. It will
0: be, won't it? It's no it big deal be, to him.
1: It will be that. But when I started to speak to him about some, you know, partners I speak to that have issues with their partner breastfeeding, um, he said he, he, he kind of understood. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, from as As young as I can remember on billboards, I saw women's breasts in the context of lingerie and sensuality. So he's saying that his kind of forming self over the years, has, and he's heterosexual, has equated breasts with sexuality.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Yeah, and he's saying, he,
1: he was basically saying that certainly at an unconscious level... Um, when I see a woman uh, breastfeeding, eat, there is an, a reaction, but it's not a negative reaction.
0: Yeah, and often the the whole the visibility of of the of feeding in public is the thing that people think about when they think why is it so hard for people to do it here in the UK. That's the thing that they latch onto, and there's so much to, to coin a phrase. Um, there's so much more, isn't there, than just the difficulty of feeding in public. I mean, that was, for me, that was nothing. That was neither here nor there compared with some of the other issues that came up.
1: Well, nor for my late wife either. You know, she, she breastfed all the, the children and in public you would hardly know she was feeding. Mm. You know, because she had her own sensibilities about having her breasts exposed. So she took the kind of measures that she needed to in order to not feel self-conscious.
0: Yeah and most people do and sometimes um, people will say oh well and, and people when they breastfeed in public and they have to get everything out and be really uh, in your face about it and I'm thinking there must be very very few women who genuinely do that or want to do that. Most of us just want to feed our babies.
1: But Having said that those that do want to do that why not?
0: Well yeah <laughs> but that's this is like we we said last time didn't we from our point of view yeah that's no big deal but the rest of the world might not be seeing it in the same way.
1: Uh, well, I, I've I've heard people say, well, I, you know, men say, well, I wouldn't go and take a, a you know, a, a urinate in public.
0: But that's not equivalent, so... Oh, exactly. I mean, irrelevant. and that's
1: been, well, that's been my response. But the fact that it turns up in their sensibilities as
0: equivalent is is concerning, right? It's concerning. But my point was that it's not, feeding in public and and people's attitudes to it, that is the big problem.
1: Well, I'll say more about that because, you know, the stuff that uh, trends on Facebook and Twitter, you know, when people are told off about feeding in public and stuff like that, does seem to be related to people's sensitivities around uh, naked parts of a woman's body.
0: Yeah, and it is there on Facebook and Twitter, but the reason breastfeeding is hard for women is not just about... What people put on Facebook and Twitter—it's getting support. It's worrying and doubting and anx- anxiety about whether the baby's feeding. It's being up all night. It's is so many other things. So,
1: so I, I think what you're saying is the feeding in public is is a, a minimal yeah. um, intrusion into. I mean, public perception. I I recently watched um, Ricky Gervais's new series called. What's it called? Life After Death? Afterlife, is it? Afterlife, yeah. I thought it was. I love Ricky Gervais, but I didn't rate this series. I watched the whole thing and was underwhelmed by it. I, I thought it became a bit of a platform for some of his strongly held views, which is nothing wrong with that, but it was a bit trite, in my opinion. Well, there's a scene in it. I don't want to spoil it, but there's a scene in it where someone drinks a woman's breast milk and Ricky Gervais does kind of gagging type, you know. Like he's going to be sick. Like there's somehow something intrinsically wrong with drinking breast milk.
0: Hmm.
1: And I, I think that's a bit of a prevailing... Uh, is it is it a prevailing sentiment, the idea yeah. of drinking... Oh, yeah, yeah, I think
0: so. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's the, the Ross in Friends accidentally tasting the breast milk scene, isn't there? You know, it's as yeah. deeply embedded... Well,
1: I, I definitely tasted my late wife's, uh, the the milk that she produced, without a doubt. I definitely did.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it gets everywhere, doesn't it? <laughs> well, yeah,
1: in the context of intimacy, probably.
0: Do you want that to go into the
1: episode? Yeah, of course. Why? Why would I not talk about that? she thought it might be a little bit personal. <laughs> well, you know, she's, she's not here. No, but you are. No, I talk about it... Um, in the context of the Birthing for Blokes program, you know, that um, in the context of intimacy, if, if a woman wants to express herself, you know, sexually while she's breastfeeding, tasting the milk, you know, might be an experience that a man has or, or a same-sex partner for that matter.
0: Mm, I'm painfully aware that if Josh is still listening, he's probably finding this quite challenging. <laughs> hey
1: hang with it Joss yeah
0: stay (laughs) hang with it stay because we're going to we're going to play our interview now so this is Cecilia Tamori and she is talking about the cultural context of breastfeeding um, having researched this very deeply her book is fascinating but it's, it's dense with information and it's really interesting let's hear it Okay, so my guest today is Cecilia Tamori, who is in the US, but not from the US, I think, as I understand it. got it. it. Yep. Um, And we are going to talk about breastfeeding. Yay. Hi, Cecilia. Hello. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. It's your early morning and my mid-afternoon on a beautiful day. And we are going to discuss the cultural context of breastfeeding, which is an enormous subject for us to fit into 20-odd minutes. Where should we start?
2: <laughs> well, that, that's a hard question. Um, maybe with some of the misconceptions about how breastfeeding is and has always been the way that we think it might be in a Western cultural setting, something along those lines. That sounds, you think. Yeah, that sounds perfect. Okay, um, so I think... One of the most common issues that I encounter, depending on the audiences that I'm speaking to or students I'm teaching, um, in settings where breastfeeding is not quite as common or where people are very skeptical about breastfeeding, people believe that breastfeeding has always been something that doesn't really work and that is essentially something that we don't really need that much, quote unquote, anymore mm. in these kinds of places uh, that are usually, con- you know, part of what we call Western, which I have to, when I teach this, I have to put it in um, scare quotes, basically, because that's, you know, it's really that itself is a cultural construction, whatever the West might be. Um, So, you know, with that in mind, um, there's lots of different cultures in the quote unquote West and there's lots of different people. And I think that that's part of the issue here um, is that things have never been simple. They have never applied to everybody equally in any of these settings. And so sort of that is where I start. And I think part of my own work has been sort of uncovering what are the cultural assumptions and where do they come from in the first place. Um, And I think that that sort of really shapes how we think about breastfeeding and how we even ask scientific questions about breastfeeding. And so my orientation comes from a dual perspective. One is about the evolutionary context of infant feeding. So if you look at comparative work in primate studies and others, um, you know we need to think about humans in relation to other mammals. And that is difficult for many people to process, partly if they haven't heard of, you know, evolution, haven't really understood our place in relation to other organisms. So that's sort of step one. And then the step, the other step that I've been influenced by, because anthropology encompasses both of these things, which is pretty, uh, it's a very diverse kind of discipline, very different from other disciplines that are narrower we also look at things in comparison to other cultural contexts and across different time periods. And what you find is, of course, that breastfeeding is is an evolutionary adaptation that's ancient um, and precedes us by millions of years. And in fact, the adaptations for milk and lactation precede us by even longer. And so, you know, you look at breastfeeding as an, as an adaptive process. And then you look across historical time and throughout historical time, you know, our human ancestors and the ancestors of the, our current species all engaged in feeding their young And part of the reason why it's particularly significant for humans is because we have this extremely long and important period of infant care. So our infants are not like many other infants. Um, Primates also, in general, tend to have a fairly lengthy infant care period. But for humans, we have an extremely lengthy infant care period that's needed for our babies to even survive. And so that process of taking care of babies is facilitated by breastfeeding and necessitates breastfeeding. So that proximity that is entailed in breastfeeding is a series of adaptations. It's not one thing. It's a whole set of very complex, interdependent biological and biocultural kinds of adaptations. And I think that that people don't really necessarily know about this. So I think that that's one of the areas where anthropology can help. And then if you look at it historically, really it's a very recent um, change that we have Various places where breastfeeding does not exist. So we have some cultural settings uh, before the introduction of mass production of commercial infant formula, where people did not breastfeed. Um, it did not work very well in terms of uh, survival. Um, and of course, there have always been inequities. So wealthy people have engaged in hiring or forcing other people to feed their babies. So that has occurred in the past. And after sort of the introduction of agriculture in particular, you have, you know, various cultural settings where people are feeding babies things other than, uh, you know, breastfeeding. But for the most part, you know, culture's pretty much figured out that, that infant care, that breastfeeding is a part of, that proximity carrying babies, feeding them um, throughout the day and night um, was a pretty normal sort of expectation. And it doesn't mean that only moms did this, you know, as we have many examples in different cultural settings where other uh, people might take a turn also breastfeeding. So collaborative breastfeeding is also part of this process. So these are sort of the main issues that I think anthropologists have been talking about for a long time. And then you have sort of a huge historical transformation. And that's sort of what I've been writing about. Um, In my earlier study, I focused on one particular setting and the history of that particular setting, which was the U.S. But increasingly, I'm looking at the global processes, that have been undermining breastfeeding systematically. And so my work has been trying to um, outline this for uh, a broader audience beyond, you know, um, a more narrow academic um, anthropological audience because I think it has so much significance. So I've been trying to translate what we know in anthropology to Um, You know, people who might not be able to read, you know, technical literature, which really, you know, obviously is a very narrow group of people who will read academic literature. Um, And I think in that, the most important pieces to know are how much what we see as a current landscape of the unequal distribution of breastfeeding has to do with historical processes, particularly um, colonization colonial expansion, the um, intertwining of that with capitalism and the way in which capitalism really transforms economic systems throughout the globe, and biomedicalization, which is also sort of intertwined with these other two processes. And so what you have is essentially a particular series of cultural ideas that are propelled from Europe and from North America via, usually via elites um, and via often men, white elite men who become medical experts who transformed childbearing in general, childbirth altogether. And these ideologies then spread across the globe via these engines, the interlinked engines of colonialism and capitalism, and ultimately began to undermine breastfeeding globally. And so what we have now is these enormous uh, inequities and huge possibilities for exploitation that happen daily, um, particularly by corporations that are owned by uh, Western nations, that actively undermine breastfeeding around the globe. So um, we really have to look at breastfeeding in relation to these kinds of larger social processes. So that's sort of my more recent work. So that gives you a little bit of a snapshot. So feel free to ask me um, what you'd like to ask me next.
0: Ah, it does give a snapshot. I've got lots of things that I've written down as you were writing, uh, as you were speaking. One of them was just the thought that it's it's really only very relatively recent, evolutionarily recent, and in quite small geographical areas, that breastfeeding has been a thing that is um, universally thought to not work, because clearly, we're here we are.
2: Yeah, it's very recent. And so the idea of it being sort of inherently broken, Um, That is very much a, you know, quote unquote, Western construction. And it exists unequally among in those Western settings. So by the time we get into about the middle of the 20th century, most of those Western settings have um, normalized commercial breast milk substitutes. Now, in that broader context that I mentioned, where you also have enormous medicalization of childbirth. So medicalization of the entire childbearing process and fragmentation of that childbearing process. So you have different experts governing childbirth and infant care, and there are all sorts of expectations within that, and the processes that are involved in these, uh, in this medicalization, um, and you know again, I think capitalism. You cannot not talk about it Mm. because it's so built into that system. You know, the entire biomedical establishment brings in capitalist influences throughout. So even in a system like in the UK where you have the NHS and you have, you know, a a public system, which I understand is, is getting undermined, but, you know, in its sort of model form when it was established, even so, you know, there are... Over time, there are these emphases on productivity, on efficiency, and regulating Mm. breastfeeding. And those things don't really work well for breastfeeding because that's not how the physiology of breastfeeding actually works. And so you have, you know, fairly, you know, you're getting more and more medicalized childbirth. You're getting this very heavily regulated kind of breastfeeding. And also importantly in that process, which is, you know, a large part of my work is the separation of babies um, from their moms at night, which really means that physiologically, it's very difficult to continue lactation if you don't have proximity. So that proximity, I think, is sort of one of the key takeaways that I try to emphasize in all my talks, that breastfeeding isn't just about the milk. I think the milk is wonderful, it's it's fantastic, but we're increasingly separating that too from the process
0: mm-hmm.
2: the of relationship. Breastfeeding, that relationship and and that if even if things don't work quote unquote perfectly. We can still um, copy many aspects of that system, and proximity is a key piece of that. So, when things don't go right, for example, having proximity then helps reestablish some of the things that haven't gone right. You know, for example, when people are s- separated in um, maternity wards, which oh, happens yeah. That's really... a lot. It's crucial, crucial, crucial. Mm. So, those locally, we have yeah, baby friendly,
0: encouraging. right to be together
2: and now that you have interventions that can really reshape the landscape before that to happen you have to have policies where breastfeeding is understood to be the norm not an extra not something that you kind of add in and stir you know but it's something that's foundational and of course that is a that's a paradigm shift Right, so it's it's a it's a flipping it around because you know when you have cultural assumptions that normalize um, breast milk substitutes, that they are naturalized. They you know people see them as the norm, which is to me, a fascinating, cultural, very depressing, but fascinating cultural process by which you can make that happen. So it takes a lot of cultural work. You can really see how important culture is in this process. It takes a lot of work to make something that comes from another animal, another mammal, another lactating animal that is processed in multiple kinds of factories, right? And then created into a product and marketed for that thing to become the norm that's an incredible cultural transformation and that is how flexible humans are we are capable of naturalizing things even if they aren't part of our physiology um that can have some benefits in other kinds of contexts, just not in this one.
0: So for us to have made that huge paradigm change that we have from universal um giving baby babies breast milk in one way or another to now it being not the norm, not not the cultural norm to do this mm-hmm. and the medical assumption and, well, basically the universal assumption that it doesn't really work very well and we'd need this commercial replacement for it. Mm-hmm. Is there any way we can move back? Can we change the paradigm back again?
2: I hope so. I mean, I think that's part of the work that I've been trying to do, especially as I'm trying to, um, you know, participate more in reaching a larger group of um, both lactation professionals and healthcare um, workers and just, you know, a little bit broader audiences than, than anthropologists. I think, yes, I think it is possible. I think one of the key issues that we have to tackle is how scientific studies are set up. So currently, we are sort of fighting a little bit of a, a, a battle um, and have been for decades, Um, with sort of biomedicalization now sort of being an asset, but also a challenge. So remember how I said, you know, early on, biomedicalization was not really our friend in terms of breastfeeding because the more biomedicalized things have become, the easier it became to kind of bring in, bring about this transformation that I talked about. Mm-hmm. So biomedicalization actively actually undermined breastfeeding. And we have all the evidence for that. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's particularly these physicians' advice that systematically undermines Yeah. Um, breastfeeding i uh, mean yeah i'm so,
0: always fascinated by that but it, it will digress us um
2: yeah i'm not going to get into that unless you want me to that's sort of part of my work on the origins of these ideas mm-hmm. right um you know and they're fundamental but at the same time you know now we have a situation where in the last few decades you know it, it is actually you know the grassroots movements that have transformed, that have started to kind of galvanize people to reverse this tide, were bolstered by biomedical people. So a lot of the efforts, you know, a lot of the support for breastfeeding is now coming from biomedical institutions. Um, As you can see, you know, obviously (laughs) baby-friendly being one of the crucial ones and, you know, including, you know, the World Health Organization and all these biomedical researchers who have been basically showing systematically over and over again with thousands and thousands in study how important breastfeeding is to both babies and moms. So, the, you know, that is coming from biomedicine now. I think the challenge of this is because it is still biomedicalized. There are certain kinds of assumptions that are carried From the previous era. So one of the big ones is this idea that we have to continue to prove, quote unquote, the benefits of breastfeeding. I think one of the ways that we can help transform this is for epidemiologists to start using different language. I think epidemiologists need to think about breastfeeding as the standard and the human mammalian norm against which actually the burden of proof is on formula, right? And mm-hmm. you know, we can wait until the centuries to to ever have a study that shows that formula is beneficial over breastfeeding because there aren't any, right? So if you think about it this way, you look at all the arguments online, you know, look at the the narratives and the media narratives. I think it's fascinating how the burden of proof remains on quote unquote the benefits of breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. That is a nonsensical way of framing a scientific question. Now, in terms of advocacy, you know, the, that language is, it may be different, you yeah. know, in term, because we have to frame things in a way that works for local people. But I think, you know, I think it's really important for epi- epidemiologists drive a lot of the you know, evidence-based guidelines, right? So for that research to have a different kind of traction, I think it's actually really important for them to understand a a more, an evolutionary framing of this and a historical framing of this and understand that these issues are, we, we don't have to actually prove anything. I would love to see the burden being shifted onto these other kinds of products. And of course, that would immediately take the wind out of some of these corporate marketing strategies. That's one of the, I think that's one of the ways to do it. The other thing is on the policy level, I think probably the biggest, the biggest uh, contributions that we can make is one regulating these corporations. I think that um, we would have a very different landscape if we did not have false marketing claims and all the different ways that the marketing is reaching new parents, especially now digitally. Yeah. So, so I mean, Pretty much uncontrolled. Know, complete. I mean, you know, <laughs> including, you know, some of the marketing claims that are, you know, self-regulated. I mean, self-regulation is just that does does not work. So I think people on un- people underestimate the structural factors. So government policy um, can make an enormous impact. So I think the the sort of the dual um, policy pieces of this, you know, the number one thing, I think, uh, addressing these corporations and their involvement in various kinds of health uh, and medical associations and research and the lobby groups. I mean, this is a, a pervasive issue that I think needs to be right up front in policymaking uh decisions. And then, of course, the second piece of that is to actually value, to value breastfeeding, which actually means providing policies so that people can breastfeed. That involves structural changes as well. I mean, in the U.S., as you know, we don't even have paid leave, federally mandated paid leave. So people are going back to work. And obviously, it's extremely difficult even with some legal protections for expressing breast milk, you're taking the proximity piece out altogether uh, and people having to go back to work within weeks. So, I mean, obviously, the the leave piece is enormous. Hmm.
0: And Um, yet you have better breastfeeding duration rates than we do.
2: Yes, I think that that has a lot to do with some cultural issues. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I've been fascinated with that as I spent more time in the UK and just comparing the, the rhetoric Um, There are some differences. Um, I think people in the U.S. are increasingly on board. I think people understand that it matters. I think we also have a much stronger advocacy based on inequities. And I think that that has been changing the landscape as well. I think that people understand that not breastfeeding is linked to health inequity and that people can't afford to wait you know, for change, people want to make sure that their babies do well.
0: Yeah, here, um, here you can't really say that without being accused of making people feel guilty.
2: You know, I think um, that's, it's something that people have to understand that we have to be able to do this in a way that isn't about individuals. I think yeah. I think that the rhetoric needs to shift. And I, you know, obviously, I haven't done, you know, I haven't written an ethnography about the UK, but I am listening I'm listening to how people frame conversations. And I do get the sense that there is a fair amount of uh, moralizing that's surrounding these issues. And I I would like to just get rid of them on both sides of the pond. Yeah. I I don't think that that's helping. I don't think that that uh, allows transformation to take place. So I don't think, you know any sort of and clearly some of that is is legitimate experiences that people have about being made to feel that they're doing something wrong in the hospital so i i do believe that that occurs i think what's fascinating is that in the uk media discourses there's zero acknowledgement of the fact that the majority of people in the uk actually do not breastfeed mm. for very long at all and so you know if if stigmatization was going only one way right if, if the stigma was only going, uh, you know, in one direction, which is that if, you, if you're if you not able to breastfeed for whatever reason, then you're socially excluded, right? If that was the case, yeah, you would be seeing an entire nation who's just breastfeeding all the time, right? That's, that's clearly not the case.
0: That's so, <laughs> so true, yes. <laughs>
2: so so the, the, the manifest evidence um, contradicts that entire line. So I think that you have both. I think that there is absolutely a sense of moralizing about not about breastfeeding not working out, which I find I'm not quite sure where that comes from and why it is here in the first place, but I think what's underestimated and seems to be basically underplayed altogether is that clearly there's enormous, there's enormous amounts of stigmatization related to breastfeeding. And I did look at that and I have spoken about that in different um, lectures when I talk about the moral aspects of breastfeeding. Um, And we have, we have that data. I mean, I've been, you know, I have looked at both quantitative and qualitative data about the stigmatization of breastfeeding in the UK and it's pervasive. So it's no wonder that people are having a hard time. It's not just establishing breastfeeding, it's being able to actually breastfeed in public. Um, It's being able to participate in social life while breastfeeding, because, you know, if you are excluding people from social participation, then that's not, that's not helpful. Mm
3: -hmm. So I
2: do, I do think that that's really different. I think that in the U.S., there's been a real shift since I've been working on this. Because I started about almost 20 years ago now, there's a shift that I've witnessed firsthand in how much more breastfeeding we see in the U.S. in, um, you know, in public spaces, and how much more it's become a, a much more social, uh, socially acceptable than it was when I started this work. I think that that transformation has not taken place in the UK Yeah. and you can really see that. And I think some media outlets seem to be extremely bent on only presenting one particular story. Yeah. I'm thinking particularly of the BBC um, Women's Hour episode that misrepresented actual data. I mean, that's, you know, really uh, impressive. But that's you know,
0: standard, isn't it? And, and the, the type of people that they choose to invite on as experts.
2: Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, let me just add that it's not okay to have experts who have conflicts of interest.
0: No. Um, and, as, and that's yeah. fundamental to what the BBC tells us that they're anyway.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, mm. that's a real problem. I think that, you know, so framing matters, media framing matters. Um, and I, I think that there is, you know, there is a more work to be done by social scientists.
0: Yeah. I could keep talking to you for hours
2: <laughs> but we I think we've had half an hour and I think we have to stop
0: <laughs> um, if people good. want to find out more about your work Cecilia where's the best place for them to go
2: um well let's see I think um feel free to link them to my website where I have all my publications and people can download my cv um the most recent book that we co-edited with um Dr. Anjali Pomquist and EA Quinn is um, breastfeeding new anthropological approaches and then if they want to read the previous book it's an ethnography of nighttime breastfeeding in the US so those would be probably the top places to go
0: that's brilliant thank you so much for your time
2: you're very welcome
1: okay Karen uh, what were some of the key points for you in that discussion
0: it was just fascinating to listen to her put it in context and um her anthropological view in fact her multidisciplinary view on why things are so complex and so difficult and so challenging um i really loved listening to that and i could have talked to her for another couple of hours and in fact there is a longer version of the interview because i've edited it down for brevity but i will put the long version on patreon for people to have a listen oh nice for everyone
1: to access or just um
0: well i usually do the staged thing so you uh, the patrons get it first and then it goes public after that nice nice so i don't know if that's answered the question about what makes it so hard remind me what's her core discipline um, she's multidisciplinary. She comes from different factors, but she's looking at... Uh, she's from a biological point of view as well as sort of sociological, anthropological. Those are some nice words.
1: Yeah, no, but it's cool. It's cool. I I mean, breastfeeding is so tied to our kind of experience as a mammal, isn't it? Mm. it it's hard to think that the 100-year experiment that we're in the midst of, um, of formula feeding, won't have a long-term, you know, impact.
0: yeah. Yeah, it is.
1: Although, based on evolutionary cycles, uh, we're, you know, we're destined to be extinct at some point.
0: Well, naturally, yes. For anyone who is interested in reading a bit more about this, I can strongly recommend either of Gabrielle Palmer's books on the politics of breastfeeding. Oh, yeah. Um, the Why It Matters one from Pinter and Martin is particularly accessible.
1: Yeah. Um, and a very erudite woman. I've had the privilege of meeting her and... A very articulate view.
0: Well, next time you do, grab an interview. Shall we look at some of the news?
1: Let's do it. You pick.
0: Right. So you've got a blog called Maternity Outcomes Matter.
1: Oh, let's t- let's talk
0: about that because yeah. that's
1: uh, Margaret Treadwell.
0: Oh, right. And you've got an interview lined up with her for a future episode. Yes. Having perused
1: the the blog and know I know something of the emphasis on safety in um in childbirth I thought it 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 would be a good balancing blog uh, for us to engage with and and certainly uh, I'm looking forward
0: to the interview with her okay so what what is her philosophical position
1: well i <laughs> I mean, she's she's coming from the point of view, I think she also heads up uh, the Birth Trauma Association, but she's coming from the point of view of a history of interacting with service users, you know, women and their partners that have been through the service, who have suffered, uh, whether that be physical suffering uh, or emotional suffering or a combination of the two. Okay. Well, she's involved with the move towards Inverted commas, increasing safety uh, around birth and pregnancy.
0: Right. So is this the position that you need to reduce all risk to zero?
1: Well, I don't, I, I I think there is uh, an obvious admission that you can never remove risk from an event like pregnancy and birth. Um, but there is this. Uh, cross-referencing of death rates uh, across nations and the placing of us on a sort of like a league table that says we're not doing as well as we could. Right. And investigating, you know, ways that we can uh, open up the blame culture so that we truly learn from uh, mistakes and errors. She would be supportive, I think, as would the blog, of the current moves towards, uh, you know, routine uh, induction of labour if a woman has reported decreased fetal movements over a period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, uh, there's a kind of a policy at the moment in the NHS of increasing ultrasounds and things like that. So on one side of the debate, I I guess her and her colleagues would be considered... uh, kind of interventionists in the context of safety yeah James Titchcombe is a member of their executive
0: so this is a blog um, at maternityoutcomesmatter.org.uk and I think if we've got the interview lined up and it won't be probably in an episode until the summer it would be very very interesting if people listening would like to have a read and send us some questions
1: yeah I I think that would be fantastic, because you know the po- the polarization within our community, the birth community, is evident. Um, the minute you go on a Facebook page, or the minute you go on Twitter, and in some ways, the emphasis of this blog and this group um, would be probably on, I don't know, not the extreme of most of our listeners perspective. But it's, but, but it's
0: definitely not the perspective that we are normally coming from.
1: No it's a contrast. Mm.
0: So this is going to be a very interesting one and um, really looking forward to that interview.
1: Yeah me too because you know learning occurs in the context of contrast and the danger of those of us that might put ourselves on one end or towards one end of the spectrum is that we become blinkered in our own cognitive bias yeah it's
0: it's too easy only to read the stuff that confirms what we already believe
1: yeah and, and to be honest when I'm in a discussion with someone that has an alternative uh, position to me I'm always keen to be able to express their opinion to them in a way that they go yeah that's it that's what I think because until I can do that I'm in danger of setting up straw men to knock down
0: mm.
1: or a caricature of someone's view. You know, yeah. you hear it, you read it all the time on Facebook. Well, someone, someone thinks this. And then when you delve deeper, you realise, no, that, that you know, it's out of context and isn't um, really following the argument of the person they disagree with. And uh, probably why we're in such a Brexit mess, right? Don't even,
0: let's not go there. <laughs>
1: No, I've I've got I've got, I've got yeah. Brexit exhaustion, frankly.
0: Anyway, and we you can't afford to, can you? We can't be complacent about this because Oh no. I th- That's oh, what's oh, the problem is, let's not get political, Mark.
1: Well, well, just I just want to say this that I've learnt more about the parliamentary process over the last few months than I've known in all my 55-year history, and for me that's a positive impact of this situation we're in.
0: Good. It's nice every time we find a little positive about Brexit, isn't it? So there's one.
1: Well, well, and the other thing, you know, I, I've had more conversations about politics in the last three years than probably my whole lifetime. Have you? Yeah, well, people are starting to develop an opinion, you know, and, and realising the you know the power that we have as a democracy. But anyway.
0: If this means that if there's an, an election soon, which it seems like there might be, that people more people vote, then yes, that would be a positive that came from Brexit. Definitely. Yeah,
1: so... Anything else that was...
0: Yeah, I I wanted to um, put in a little thing here. So uh, one of our students contacted me saying she was going to go and see the film Tigers. Have you heard of Tigers? I haven't, no. Okay, well, you need to go and see it. It'll be film- showing somewhere near you. Um, I'll, I'll try and find a thing and put it on Facebook for us. But the film Tigers is made by a doctor who worked, and I'm going to say in Pakistan, but I'm hoping I'm not wrong about that, um, okay. worked for Nestle. and then blew the whistle and this film is his story and um so two two of our nct students liz skidmore and michaela pencross went to see it and they sent us a little bit of recording afterwards
1: oh nice Are, are we playing that now we are
0: playing that right now the roaming reporters
3: from cannon hill park and the mac in birmingham we've just seen tigers the film
4: Um, And we thought we'd talk about it a bit. Um, Yeah, so we just saw the film. There was, I don't know, 50 people, I think, in the the screening, which was a reasonable amount. It's a shame it wasn't full for the amount of people that you would like to to see see it. it. Yeah, Um, spread the word. Yeah, we were saying afterwards it needs to go onto like Netflix or something and be be seen by the wider world for its importance. (laughs) Um, But it was good. I thought it was good. I did manage to see most of it. Up and down the steps after a twelve-month-old, um, powerful, and reignited my kind of passion for for supporting breastfeeding. <laughs> it was really
3: powerful, but heartbreaking, um, which was quite hard to see. Unfortunately, I didn't see all of it, because I was chasing a 14-month up and down stairs. But I agree with Liz. It needs to be wider distributed. The the fact that it's a a real story makes a real difference um, and is quite harrowing. I like the way that they set it up. I wasn't expecting the way that they set it up in terms of the two angles. I'm trying not to sort of spoilers, but... um,
4: yeah, from the filmmaker's perspective
3: and the story. salesperson's perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. I wasn't expecting that.
4: And I thought it made it feel even more real. It made it feel more... There was more of an element of documentary than absolutely. film by them doing that. Yeah, absolutely. But just the part that it's actually real. I mean, often you'll see films that are based on a true story and then you're never sure maybe how much of that is Hollywoodized. Yeah. But this was and close yeah. to home because as breastfeeding mums and people who are passionate about supporting women with breastfeeding yeah it's so much closer to home even though it's set in pakistan
3: yeah it's so far away and yet the same the same uh. techniques the marketing techniques are the same here they're just to different people so it's the same level of impact worldwide which is hard to
4: see And it's how to get, it should be a challenge a lot of us will have faced, how to get that message out, but without being seen to be... All about breastfeeding, formulas, bad, evil. Because it has its place. And it's... It's the ethics and the politics and the finances behind it all. Yeah. Um, That are despicable. Not the women themselves, not the families that are using it, because they're just doing what they think is best or what they feel they should be doing yeah what they've been led to believe is the right thing to do um or been suggested it's been suggested to them what is
3: right for them at their family at that time but there needs to be more
4: information that's not tainted so all in all it was a very yeah very powerful film and the fact it had subtitles was okay it was fine i was a bit worried that i'd lose track but i didn't I was 14 month old pressing the car horn um, so yeah if, if you get the opportunity to go and see it or to arrange a screening I would thoroughly rec- recommend it definitely um, and if not have a look into Baby Milk Action and the work that they do absolutely and ra- raise that awareness yeah. um, something I've taken away from it because you, you know you could sit there thinking oh what can I do as one little person um, but I saw a quote recently about starfish and if you you know some, this quote one person threw the starfish back in the sea and it helped that one starfish so if we think of if i think of um the women that may be supporting as starfish then if we can help one that's one more than that wasn't helped before yeah think of starfish so thank you very much so i was liz i'm michaela thank you very much thanks so i'm
0: going to go and see this soon i'm really excited
1: That that fascinates me, that does, because, you know, when we're talking about the cultural context of breastfeeding, you cannot have that discussion without talking about formula companies.
0: Mm, Yeah. And if I could jump the gun and tell you what has inspired me this month, I watched um, two nights ago, I watched the dispatches programme on the formula industry and um, it was frustratingly short. I felt like they could have made a, you know, six week long series about this, but looking at the... The way the formula company kind of self-regulates not um, yeah. was really interesting. Yeah. Are you
1: going to post a link to that?
0: Yeah, we'll do. Rock and roll. Hey, did you see my good show notes on Patreon last time? When I was editing, I made notes of everything that we mentioned that we would put, and I've put them put everything up with links on Patreon. Oh, very good. Very good.
1: Get over to Patreon, you lot, and check it out.
0: Yes, that's com slash broadcast. So Mark, Yeah, go on. what has inspired you?
1: Well, I, it, it's not birth related, uh, uh, but a book called The Finders by Dr. Jeffrey A. Martin.
0: And what's it about?
1: Uh, well, he's a neuroscientist and a social scientist who for the last 15 years has been studying what he calls persistent non-symbolic experience or fundamental well, or funda- fundamental well-being or if you like enlightenment he's been studying these subjects for about 15 years i think it's the um the subject of his phd and um uh, he's developed a sort of like a protocol that in 73% of people that go through the protocol they experience uh, what what the study is calling fundamental well-being and I found it
0: inspiring. <laughs> it sounds a bit out there, Mark.
1: And if you're still
0: listening. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Josh. It's always like this.
1: I suppose it is a bit out there. <laughs> but but, but it is, it's carrying on from the work of Maslow. You know, everyone knows about the Maslow pyramid and self actualization at the top. What people don't often know is that towards the end of his life, he said there is a period, there is a state beyond... Uh, self actualization, which is self-transcendence. And he had an experience of that that he wrote about in later life. So I think it has implications for mankind and could well be our next evolution.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I'm passionate about that. Can I come back down to earth with another endorsement? Am I allowed to have two? Yeah, of course. Um, I read Adam Kay's book, This Is Going To Hurt. Ah! I thought I was going to hate it and I loved it. Oh,
1: no, really? Yeah.
0: Brilliant. I didn't like the way he... uh, You know, there was the the odd remark about, you know, if you come in with a birth plan, you're you're going to end up with a cesarean, that kind of thing. But more generally, just the way he writes about his work, I was really moved by it. There There were points where I did laugh and there were points where I got really quite upset by it. And yes, if that is how all doctors think about birth it it is problematic but it's understandable it really is understandable and it gave me so much insight and empathy for what doctors are doing in the NHS
1: oh that's fantastic I'm halfway through the audiobook and I had a similar reaction to you Mm. yeah in a way I felt that if you read the piece that people consider misogynistic and and the rest of it in isolation yeah you would think he was an arsehole
0: which is exactly where I was at before
1: yeah, you read the whole book and you get a sense of his pathos and um, I, I'm i with you on that. In fact, I'm in touch with him. He, he declined an interview earlier in the year because he's busy, but I've messaged him recently to see if he's got time.
0: Oh, keep on that one, Mark. We'd love to have him. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. You could interview him if you want.
0: Oh, that'd be great.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll see, I'll see what I can do. I he, He's a in the messages that i've had with him he's an okay guy mm.
0: oh well, well we'll we'll see if we can get that maybe it's a little christmas treat
1: yeah it'd be cool and and it, it's good in that in the community that listens to us because that book has had a slamming
0: yes and uh, you can understand why yeah but read it just read it come on be open-minded people brilliant so back to the script it's you
1: oh it's me that's all we've got time for for today Uh, But good news is that we'll have another episode on the 25th of next month, and I'm very excited about it. It's um, the author of The Gendered Brain, is that right? that's right. And it's Gina Rippon, that's right. Very excited about that episode. Dennis Walsh, uh, Professor Dennis Walsh, uh, recommended the book to me, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Please keep in touch with us on facebook.com slash sprodcast and at sprodcast on Twitter. Remember to leave us a review on iTunes uh, and importantly, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash sprodcast.
0: Thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Josh, if you're still with us and goodbye.
1: Goodbye from me.
0: (laughs) That was fun. (laughs) You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash sprogcast. And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code SPROGcast at the checkout.